This episode of the Policy Viz podcast is brought to you by Juice Analytics. Juice is the company behind Juicebox, a new kind of platform for visualizing data. Juicebox is a platform designed to deliver easy-to-read interactive data applications and dashboards. Juicebox turns your valuable analyses into a story for everyday decision makers. For more information on Juicebox or to schedule a demo, visit juiceanalytics.com. Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm here this week with Lane Harrison, Assistant Professor at Worcester Polytechnic Institute, WPI, for fans of the school. Uh, Lane, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, John. I'm glad to have you here. want to talk a little bit about what you do for a living, which is research and data visualization. I think um, a lot of people are probably familiar, obviously, with reading and looking at data visualizations, and many people are familiar with creating visualizations. But then there's this whole other slice of the pie on doing research about data visualizations. What are the best techniques? What are the best tools? So I'm curious if you can sort of start, maybe uh, maybe talk a little bit about yourself, a little background, and then maybe tell folks what the field is like. What does it mean to do research on data visualizations? Sure thing. Uh, well, I'm Lane, Lane Harrison, uh, brand new assistant professor at WPI in uh, the Department of Computer Science. I sort of fell into data visualization by accident. Uh, we can actually thank uh, Robert Cassara for some of this back at UNC Charlotte uh, about 10 years ago, uh, there was a big visualization group. And uh, one of the things they did there is a visualization in the World Symposium. I remember being a freshman, brand new freshman in college, and uh, going to this symposium because it was extra credit for a computer science course. And uh, it turned out, or I found that you could do graphics with a purpose. So it's the talks that I saw there from people at Utah and uh, you know Ben Schneiderman, all kinds of places, mm-hmm. that was really fascinating to me. Um, And from then on, I was kind of hooked on data visualization uh, and data visualization research. Okay. Um, So after UNC Charlotte, I came up to Tufts University for a postdoc. I worked in a visual analytics lab with uh, Remco Chang. And uh, after a year or two of that, actually, it was around this time last year that I accepted a job at WPI, moved in over there, started recruiting students, and now we have a a tiny lab that we can uh, start doing more research with. Start doing your own stuff. All right. So can you give us a sense of the field and its progression over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years, maybe? Sure, yeah. So, Viz Research, um, as an actual field, as an actual conference, started around 1990. It's either 1990, 89, or 91. I forget. Uh, it kind of grew out of the, the graphics community, and you can see that influence in early data visualization techniques. Ended up having a lot of 3D charts and early data visualization papers, um, which turns out, for abstract data, that's not a great way to... Uh, <laughs> To look at your not data. the best way. Okay, right. we all have things we're embarrassed about in our in our younger days. So, it's okay. true. It's so true. Feel it's the same thing. Okay, and they they've grown a lot since then. <laughs> and you know, at the data viz, um, so the viz conference, you'll see, uh, you know, that's where techniques like the tree map was introduced in the early '90s, and um, uh, parallel coordinates plots they show up a lot in early data visualization research. So years and years of techniques. So as data got you know longer, so we have more and more rows, larger and larger data, databases, uh, more complex with more and more uh, dimensions, we needed techniques that could handle that. A lot of early data visualization research kind of centered along this, this technique-driven research. Um, but what we found in more recent years is that with a plethora of techniques, for any given data set, you have so many different techniques that you could throw at it. How can we decide which one is best for a given user, for a given audience, for a given task? 
some more recent research and data visualization has kind of you know turned its focus away from the techniques and away from the data and back to the user. I find that really, really exciting. Honestly, the, the human component of data visualization is uh, the thing that I like to research the most. You know, it's gratifying to me to, right. to figure out how humans work uh, in the context of data. So when it comes to the human experience, it's about how do we perceive a 3D graph versus a 2D graph? How do we work with animation and interactivity? So let's just take a made-up example. Sure. Although I'm, not, I'm sure it's not made up. I'm sure someone's done this. But let's say how we perceive quantities from a bar chart. So you want to, as a researcher, you want to know whether people accurately discern the quantities from some bar chart. So how do you actually physically do that test? Do that? Research? Sure. Accurate. Well, first we would define what it means to accurately discern quantities from okay. a bar chart. Uh, you could read the values off of a bar chart. You could uh, compare two bars in a bar chart. That's actually a classic task, taking bar A and a bar B and tell me what percentage is A of B. Um, that's actually one of the first studies where we had evidence of bar charts uh, being better than pie charts. Mm -hmm. You could characterize a distribution. You could, you know, tell me the, the average. There's so many different things that people do with a bar chart. Yeah. Um, so to study that sort of thing, uh, we would, you know, draw on some, some research from statistics and research from psychology. Uh, so psychologists have this uh, really great understanding of vision and how we perceive different shapes and how accurately and precisely we perceive different shapes. So, so things like uh, our perception of line length is very, very accurate, whereas our perception of area our perception of angle uh, is, is less accurate. So that's sort of a reason underlying why we find that bar charts are better than pie charts. But to actually run that study, um, a classic one, Cleveland McGill, 1984, you know, they would randomly generate a bar chart of five bars and ask people again and again, they'll randomly select two of those bars and which, what percentage is bar A and bar B? You ask that again and again, and you can actually build a nice model of error uh, for different charts. So in that way, you can test the bar chart against the pie chart, against the stack bar chart, or mm -hmm. whatever other variation you want to come up with. Now, for a lot of the research that does that sort of thing, and we're going to turn to your specific research in a moment, because sure. I know you are doing more sort of uh, crowdsourcing and using the Mechanical Turk, but for, for, for sort of um, traditional forms of that sort of study, at least the studies that I have read, not a lot, but at least the studies I've read, the sample sizes seem to be pretty small. So how can I take a study that's, you know, 10 people or 12 people and say, oh, yeah, I can, you know, apply this to the world at large? Yeah, that's, that's a problem. I mean, you can uh, apply an average to a sample size of 10 and make things look like they're stable, yeah. uh, especially if you're reporting things like standard error. So how do we combat that? How do we look at that? You know, one of the best things I've seen people do lately is publish their data. But taking a step back, I mean, the first thing to do is to change who you're getting your data from. Uh, we, we live in the internet age, and it's very easy these days to put studies online. Um, you can you know have volunteers take them. I've seen a lot of people run studies on Twitter, and uh, I'll happily take studies if they come across my Twitter timeline. Uh, but another you know increasingly popular way is through crowdsourcing platforms uh, like Amazon's Mechanical Turk. Right. Um, so Amazon's Mechanical Turk lets you set up a task and pay people just a few cents to a dollar. It helps to be ethical. Uh, because you get to set your own prices. Yep. Uh, so a few cents to a dollar for, for the, these people to take your experiment, to take your study. Uh, and in that way, I've done studies now with thousands of participants, and you can get responses in you know, minutes or even hours uh, from the time you launch your study. Yeah. You're able to quickly answer questions and refine your experiment methodology. Uh, so it's a really great platform for doing that sort of thing. So obviously this is expanding what we can do mm -hmm. with data visualization research. 
So can you describe some of your more recent work? You've done this really interesting study on perception. You've done some other work, starting some work on virtual reality we were talking about earlier. <laughs> um, but can you talk about some of the work you've done where you're using the mechanical trick or using some of this crowdsourcing and what and what you're finding? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, you know one of the most fun types of study to run is where you can you know sort of get instant gratification. Yeah. Uh, so we started running these studies kind of to test our assumptions and data visualization. So there are a lot of things that we've, you know, hinted at or thought about, you know, from an intuitive sense for a long time, like, you know, maybe emotion, uh, you know, does that play a role in the way that we interpret charts? Mm-hmm. And it turns out, you know, with some thinking, you can run a study that tests the uh, impact of emotion and data visualization online in a very scalable way uh, and figure out, you know, if, if I'm sad. Does that mean that I perceive a chart differently? Um, so we had a paper in 2013 that tested this. We primed people uh, with stories mm-hmm. uh, from the New York Times. It took a long time to figure out, you know, stories that were appropriate length and, and that sort of thing. We had to, to test them. Uh, they were very sad. One was about hospice and one was very happy. Uh, we tried to find something neutral, but it turns out if you give people Stephen Hawking, which, you know, should be neutral, people yeah. get really angry at you. Huh. Uh, so, so that didn't work. Um, but what we found was very interesting is that the perception of these basic charts like bar charts and pie charts was indeed impacted by emotion. And people who were negatively primed um, performed significantly worse uh, than people who were positively primed, so people who were made to be happy. Uh, and what's more is that the reaction times didn't change. Um, so no matter you know what we were testing, the reaction times were the same, but error was very different. Uh, so as to what's going on underneath that, we, we need to turn to you know cognitive psychologists, and we did that. Um, a colleague at Northwestern, Steve Frankenary, uh, he came up with some possible explanations for that. Um, and that, you know, if you're negatively primed, uh, the perceptual spotlight of attention is a little bit more narrow. Mm-hmm. And that can manifest through how we, you know, show charts to people. And where it becomes increasingly important is, you know, we're starting to use data visualizations for more than just news stories. Um, people are using data visualizations to, you know, well, not only decide who to vote for, but maybe decide what treatment to get for cancer. Uh, and when you're presenting this sort of data to people, you need to, you need to be able to quantify the impact of things like the emotional state of your audience. Uh, So that was an interesting study uh, a few years ago. I can imagine, not just on readers of news articles, right? It's doctors who are dealing with life and death situations. Also, So that's that's really interesting on the effect of emotion on on visualization. So now what about research you've done on animation or interactivity? And and, we've talked about sort of your classic bar charts, pie charts, that sort of thing. But what about sort of the... New way of data visualization, <laughs> right? Interactivity, animation, those sort of, you know, those are the new new way that we're thinking about uh, That's true. Uh, working with data. That's true. Um, so we're starting to, to think about interaction and what it means, um, you know, whenever a person's perceptual processes are in play uh, with interaction and how we can exploit that and help people to interact more deeply with data visualizations. I don't want to say too much since this is still under review at the InfoViz conference. Uh, <laughs> But suffice to say that there's some <laughs> very interesting things you could do that, in, in hindsight, uh, kind of makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, and so other studies I've seen recently with animation, something that people do, they transition between charts, uh, and there's a huge design space that's unexplored there. One of the early techniques was just to stagger uh, the animations. And there's some recent research, actually not from me, um, but from uh, Fanny Chevalier at uh, Emria that came up with ways to do that. One thing I can talk about, a little bit older, um, but the perception of correlation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of traditional studies, you know, we compare bars, 
we compare, you know, slices on pie chart. Correlation is a little bit more complex. Uh, so we're talking about cause and effect here, linear relationships between variables. So what can we say about the perception of correlation uh, in data visualization? And uh, to illustrate that, I'd like to, to put you through an experiment, actually, Don. I hope right. you don't mind. I'm ready. Okay. All right. <laughs> so uh, everyone else can follow along. Um, so hold out your imaginary hand. So in your imaginary hand, I'm going to place a paper clip. Uh, you can feel that, right? You felt the paper clip drop in your hand. You can feel it as it's still there. Um, so now I'm going to give you a 35-pound weight. So maybe you're at the gym or maybe you have a big you know, pile of cat food. Um, so now you're holding this really heavy 35-pound weight. So now I put the paper clip on top of that 35 pounds. If you think about it, if you've done this before, you don't register a difference. You can't tell that it's there. Right. Um, so this is an instantiation of a really old thing from psychology called Faber's Law, um, more than 200 years old. And uh, a psychologist slash computer scientist, Ron Rensink at University of British Columbia in 2010, he found that the perception of correlation in scatter plots can be modeled uh, using Faber's Law, which is really interesting. Um, so Faber's Law is something that applies to our perception of weight, our perception of brightness. Uh, you know, psychologists have applied Faber's Law across the board. Things like taste, uh, Faber's Law kind of manifests there. And what's interesting is now it's applying to, to correlation. And correlation is something we think of as being a higher level. Um, so following that study, I had a, a hypothesis, a hunch. We can represent two variables in many different ways. If you, you know, throw two variables in Excel, uh, you get you know several different charts, bar charts, line charts, uh, maybe scatter plots, maybe even parallel coordinates plots if they're getting fancy these days. So the hypothesis was, you know, if the perception of correlation can be modeled using Faber's law in a scatter plot, can we do it in other charts? Uh, so we ran a study recently in 2014, I think it was 2014, uh, that tested this. Mm -hmm. So very large study, around 1,700 participants on Mechanical Turk. Very fun to run because perception, you know, just it sort of works or it doesn't. What we found is that the perception of correlation in all the charts we tested, we tested donut charts, we tested radar charts, we tested line charts, uh, nine different chart types, parallel coordinates plots, all of them could be modeled in the same exact way. So now you can talk about comparing the effectiveness of scatter plots and donut charts using a common ground. Oh, interesting. Now, when you're doing a test on correlations, mm -hmm. you move up you know, maybe a step closer to statistics. So do you think people's understandings or perceptions of even correlations as a graph, does that become somewhat more problematic because of people's just basic understandings of what a correlation is and they, like, that's, don't get that? That's, that's a great observation. So we didn't test for people's prior knowledge of correlation um, before we ran this study. We mm -hmm. just let everyone take it. And it turns out everyone was able to do relatively well. Um, you can perceive, if I show you two scatter plots and one is very highly correlated and one is not, you know, we sort of have a, a I guess, a neural network in our heads that can sort of, you know, adapt and uh, start to recognize this pattern. Um, what's very interesting, anecdotally, I, I did run this, you know, we talked about running tests on students. Yeah. Uh, I did run this test on students, um, you know, early on in the testing phase. And people who knew correlation very well can do very well mm -hmm. if they take a long time. Um, so while there's sort of this population model that we can build, you can also think of building, you know, a perception of correlation for you, John, and for me, Lane. Yeah. And then using that to determine, you know, which chart is best for you. Right. Uh, so I have no evidence to say that it changes between people, but it could. But it could. But And, and if it does, 
then that says a lot about what people need to be doing when they are creating things, right? They need to be thinking. Oh, exactly. We've always said we need to be thinking about our audience, but yeah. but this even suggests even more. Yeah. And when you tie it back to the work you did with with emotion, mm -hmm. it suggests even more. So, when you think about applying your research to the real world, um, are you out there talking to practitioners and saying, "Hey, look, you know, we have found you know this thing on emotion." So, if you're writing a story about hospice care, you should be at least considering different kinds of graphs than this big complicated thing. Graphs. That's true. It's such a huge gap between them. Um, and we are trying. So um, some recent studies before I, I left Tufts, we were actually working with uh, doctors in the medical center um, sort of along this line. Um, very, very interesting findings there. So the whole purpose of that study uh, about the perception of correlation was to come up with a ranking. I just wanted to see which one was best overall uh, and sort of what the overall ranking was. So we titled that paper, uh, Ranking Visualizations of Correlation Using Faber's Law. And we made an attempt at the end to sort of produce a chart um, that kind of showed these rankings in a simplified way. And it had the desired effect. People started to share it and, uh, you know, use it in different ways. Um, but one of the other things we did, you know, a practitioner might just want to get their hands on the data themselves. Um, so one of the things that we, we started to do is to actually publish the data from our experiments in a GitHub repository um, right alongside the paper. So whenever I went up to give the talk at the Viz conference a few years ago. The, the GitHub repo was already there, mm -hmm. um, and that made it available for people to use. We, we actually, so there is some overhead to doing that. You have to spend extra time, you know, tweaking your experiment scripts and your analysis scripts and yep. getting the data in a nice form. Uh, it turns out it was worth it. Some of you might know Hadley Wickham, um, but before I had gotten off the stage, uh, Hadley had actually submitted a pull request that fixed some of our nasty R code uh, <laughs> and analysis scripts. Thankfully, it didn't change the results. Um, but that's, you know, one of the testaments to, to putting your data and your materials out there is that people will use them. People will improve them. A few months later, um, we found that Jeff Hare and a student, Matthew Kay, uh, actually took this data and uh, ran a follow-up analysis of it and uh, came up with some better modeling techniques uh, that actually, you know, added some, uh, some error bounds to the original ranking that I produced and took care of some of the problems like outliers and right. skewed data. Um, and that was only possible because we had put the data out there. Otherwise, they would have had to run this study, this large study, again, by themselves. Right, right. So that's a really interesting point. And I'm curious, do you think there's any limits to that? Should people always be putting their code and their data out there? I mean, you are spending grant money or university money <laughs> to run these experiments. And, and you're putting a lot of your time into these things, right? So... And this may just be personally, right, or or, yep. or whatever. Like, do you feel personally like you own this thing because you put so much time and effort and money into it, <laughs> or do you feel like I'm part of a community and 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 I should be putting out there? I'm not saying either one is right. I'm just yeah. I'm curious what what. So, do you want me personally, or do you want the answer? <laughs> so, I can tell you. Uh, so, let me answer it two ways. Yeah. Um, I've heard it said that data is power, and mm -hmm. data is power. If you hold on to that data, I mean, you could publish several more papers following that, right. and the experiment materials and everything. Um, I'm of the opinion that you have to put it out there. Um, people improve on it. I mean, karma is a thing. Uh, whenever Jeff Hare and Matt Kay wrote this paper, they did a beautiful job towards the end talking about the value of open science and putting your data out there. That's something that should always be done, in my opinion. Uh, put your data out there. I mean, how often do we actually go back and, you know, incrementally build on our results anyway? <laughs> right, We're right. in search of the next new thing, yeah, which yeah, I've yeah. already, you know, started doing right. uh, things that are completely different from that. Uh, although I would like to, to revisit it very soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the replication in science is probably not as uh, 
the way it probably should be. Um, so uh, before we wrap up, um, I want to ask you, what are you, um, where are you headed now? Um, you've done this work on, on Weber's Law, you've done this work on emotion and lots of other things, but I'm curious where you're, where you where you see uh, your research going over the next year or two? Or three, yeah, I'll five. give you the overall vision. Yeah. Um, any potential students, feel free to buy into this vision and come work with me. <laughs> um, so the vision is this. Those 25 years that I talked about earlier, or 30 years now, um, in, in phys research, we made a lot of techniques. And one thing that we're good at in visualization is mapping from data to visuals. Uh, we're very good at that. We can do it very accurately. What we're not good at is connecting the visuals with humans. Uh, so with all, all these things, cognitive states like emotion and perceptual limitations that kind of mess up this, this connection between the human and the visual. And my research goal is to, to quantify that as best we can, uh, but to not just stop there. I mean, that can produce actionable results um, that can help practitioners. Um, but what if we could take these models and build them into systems, uh, build them into, you know, make systems that are aware of perceptual limitations, mm -hmm. uh, systems that calibrate to you, systems that are aware of, you know, uh, the impact of emotional state or cognitive state or even cognitive traits, who you are uh, and how you interact with and perceive data. Uh, if we can build those sorts of systems, we can help people in these critical situations. If you're communicating, you know, uh, you know, cancer statistics to someone, or if you're a cybersecurity analyst and you know the the room's on fire and uh, you've just had a breach. Um, <laughs> so these critical situations, I, I love the space of modeling humans and how they interact and perceive data, and using them to build meaningful systems. Interesting. Great. Well, uh, great. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And um, good luck with that research. It's, it's fascinating. I'm sure we'll all be uh, following it. So all right. Thanks, a lot. thanks, John. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. This week, uh, coming to you live, recorded at Boston Wharf uh, in a very lovely spring day. <laughs> um, but thanks, to everybody, for tuning in. Uh, feel free to shoot me uh, a line or a note about uh, things that you'd like to hear about on the show at uh, on the website at policybiz.com or, of course, on Twitter. Um, feel free to reach out. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Again, thanks to our sponsors, Juice Analytics. For 10 years, they've been helping clients like Aetna, the Virginia Chamber of Commerce, Notre Dame University, and U.S. News and World Report create beautiful, easy-to-understand visualizations. Be sure to learn more about Juicebox, a new kind of platform for visualizing data, at juiceanalytics.com. Also, check out their book, Data Fluency, found on Amazon.